16th of January. Cloudiness with snow, with strong wind from the northwest, lasted all night. At 4 o'clock in the morning, we saw a smoky albatross flying near the sloop. At 7 o'clock, the wind fell to the north. The snow temporarily ceased, and the sun behind the clouds occasionally peeped out. At 9 o'clock in the morning, we encountered ice, which presented itself to us through the then-blowing snow in the form of white clouds. The wind was from the north, moderate, with a large swell from the northwest. Because of the snow, our sight did not reach far. I drove a long run southward, and, having sailed two miles in this direction, we saw that the ice flowed from east through south to the west. Our path led straight into this ice field dotted with knolls. Fabian Gottlieb von Bellingshausen, 1820. Two hundred years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies and mysteries. It was a time when our modern world began to emerge. And a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at seconddecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, all one word, two D's in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 40, Antarctica. One of the coldest, most barren, and unpleasant shores in the world is a desolate, windswept crescent of rock and chunky pebbles often covered with snow with the deceptively warm and inviting-sounding name of Half Moon Beach. This place is located on Livingston Island in the South Shetland Islands, part of the peninsula and archipelago that is the northernmost part of the continent of Antarctica and almost as far away as you can get from everything and still be on planet Earth. If you had the misfortune to go to Half Moon Beach, if you do, I suggest putting on a lot of layers, you would see a little monument there, a stone cairn with a plaque commemorating the officers, soldiers, and sailors who were lost aboard the Spanish naval ship San Telmo, most likely in September 1819 at the end of the second decade. Try as I did, I could not find the actual text inscribed on the plaque, it may be in Spanish. Unless you were a hardcore buff of the history of Antarctica, admittedly a pretty niche interest, it's unlikely that this little stone monument, or the name San Telmo, would ring a bell in the most distant recesses of your mind. Even some historians who've written books about the history of Antarctica would be hard-pressed to tell you much about this event. One of the major book-length sources I used to research this episode, Below the Convergence by Alan Gurney, doesn't even mention the words San Telmo in all of its 315 pages. In my view, this is almost a crime. The sinking of the San Telmo in 1819 claimed 644 lives, and it's far and away the single most lethal disaster ever to occur on or in the waters of the continent of Antarctica. 
By comparison, the next worst disaster that happened in Antarctica, the crash of Air New Zealand Flight 901 in November 1979, also known as the Mount Erebus disaster, killed 257 people, less than half the number that went down with the San Telmo. At least historians have heard of the Mount Erebus disaster. But the lost crew of the San Telmo are important in another way. They're probably the first human beings to have seen the continent of Antarctica, and the first people to die there. Later on in this episode, I'll explain how we know they were there. It involves a haunting discovery that was made on Half Moon Beach sometime after the disaster. But in my opinion, the commander of the expedition on which the San Telmo was lost, Brigadier Rosendo Porlier y Astegueta, and the captain of the ship, Joaquin de Toledo y Para, deserve to be remembered in the company of Leif Erikson, Vasco da Gama, and Neil Armstrong in the League of Great Explorers who pushed humanity's knowledge of our planet and our universe to a new boundary. And it happened in September 1819, one of the great and mostly unknown events of the second decade that helped create our modern world. This episode will be about more than just the fateful voyage of the San Telmo, about which surprisingly little is known, the history of a continent, even in one single decade, is too big to cover in one episode. Hint for those of you who are thinking about starting a history podcast, the history of Antarctica would be a great subject, but that's not my charge. So join me now as we sail to the end of the world, literally, and delve into the icy history of Antarctica. Good evening. Welcome back to Second Decade. Before we get into the show, I have a few announcements. It's been a long time since my last regular episode, and this one marks a milestone for me in a number of ways. It's number 40, at least as far as regular episodes go, and that's a nice round number. This episode about Antarctica fulfills a long-held promise in the summary of the show, which is written even before the first episode went up, that I would eventually cover Antarctica. And this episode is the first one coming off a rather long and unplanned hiatus. I don't talk about myself much on this show, but I have mentioned a few times that I've been dealing with health issues. Fortunately, things are now looking up. On March 29th, I had surgery to remove a tumor that was first discovered several months ago. I'm doing well, and the prognosis looks good. I had thought about establishing a fundraiser, a GoFundMe or something for my medical expenses. I decided not to do that. But if you would like to help me, there are a couple of ways you could do that. First, you could become a Patreon supporter. As of now, my Patreon campaign is back on. You can find me at patreon.com slash seanmunger. Please think about becoming a subscriber and supporting future episodes of this show, and there will be many more episodes. Second, you can donate directly. I have a special PayPal link. It's paypal.me slash historyshawn. Again, paypal.me slash historyshawn. That address is also important for another reason, because you can get something in return. In the next few months, I'm going to be hosting several webinars on various historical topics. I've taught history classes online before, and they're a lot of fun. Well, I'm doing more of those. On Sunday, April 28th, I'll be giving a single-session seminar called The Roaring 1920s about the history of that tumultuous decade and what we can learn from it. In May, I'm going to be offering a webinar on Soviet history. In these webinars, I'll be utilizing my technique of geohistory, showing you via Google Maps the real-world places where history took place. It really helps cement it in your mind. 
Now, these webinars are held over Zoom and they're interactive, so you can participate and ask questions. Usually Sunday afternoons, 3 to 5 p.m. Pacific USA time. That makes it Sunday evening for Eastern United States, and there's also video access to, to the recorded video if you can't make the exact time. Anyway, anyone who donates $50 or more, $50 is the price of the class, you'll get access to one of these classes. The way you sign up is at that link I just gave you, send $50 to paypal.me slash historyshawn, along with an email address where I can send you a link to click onto the webinar or access to the video as well as written materials. If you would like to see how these classes work before you commit your money, I'm giving a free one-hour webinar, no fee required, on the historical background of Brexit, the chaotic departure of the UK from the European Union. That webinar will be on Thursday morning, April 11th. Yes, the day before Brexit is scheduled to happen, currently scheduled. That's April 11th at 9 o'clock a.m. USA Pacific Time. That makes it lunchtime, noon in the eastern United States, and 4 p.m. late afternoon in the UK. In that seminar, I'll discuss what the European Union is, how Britain joined it in the first place, and the history of Euroscepticism that led up to the Brexit vote in 2016. This class is nonpartisan and uh, uh, historical in nature, it's not political, uh, and you'll see several sites related to this history, including the Northern Irish border, so contentious right now, and the grocery store above which Margaret Thatcher was born, and many other sites. So if you want to sign up for the Brexit session, email me at sean at seanmunger.com. That's all you have to do. Just email me, sean at seanmunger.com. Obviously, give me your email address, and I'll register you for the Brexit seminar. All you need is an internet connection, standard webcam, and microphone on your computer. So to recap, free webinar in the history of Brexit, Thursday, April 11th, 9 a.m. USA Pacific Time. The Roaring 1920s, Sunday, April 28th, 3 to 5 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time, $50 to join that class. Another class coming in May on the history and places of the Soviet era, again, $50, and some more classes in the works beyond that. It's going to be a very busy spring and summer. One last announcement for those listeners in the Pacific Northwest, I will be appearing live at McMenamin's Kennedy School in Northeast Portland. That's on Monday evening, April 8th, 7 o'clock p.m., speaking about the nature of time. That's the subject of my book, The Valley of Forever. That event is free, but get there early. It will fill up. Doors open at 6. This is part of McMenamin's uh, Paranormal Pub series. You can come listen, have a beer and some great food. Kennedy School is wonderful. And again, it's free, so please come out if you're in the Portland, Oregon area. Also, I'm going to be speaking at Old St. Francis School in Bend, Oregon on May 7th on the history of climate change. So now, Antarctica. The southernmost continent in the world is without a doubt a very strange place. It's not exactly true to say that it's incapable of supporting human life because people do live there. I've met some of them. People who volunteer to work in Antarctica tend to be interesting characters. But human civilization never sprouted organically on Antarctica the way it did on every other continent. Antarctica was an other on our world. Somebody had to go out there and discover it through a deliberate act of will. Exactly who made that discovery is surprisingly hard to pin down. That's because there can be differing interpretations of what Antarctica is and what counts as discovery, which is why the prize is generally limited to three people or three groups of people. William Smith, a British sea captain who first discovered any land south of the 60th parallel, Fabian von Bellingshausen, whose words opened this episode and who we'll be talking about, and the aforementioned ill-fated crew of the Santelmo. 
but what is not in dispute is when the discovery occurred. The various voyages and discoveries of Smith, Pourlier, and the Santelmo, and Bellingshausen all occurred within an 11-month window, from February 1819 to January 1820. That puts it squarely in the wheelhouse of the second decade, and instantly marks the discovery of Antarctica as one of the most important events of the 18-teens. What really happened, though? That's our subject for tonight. You may wonder why it's taken 40 episodes of this show to get down to what I would classify as one of the top five most important events to occur in the second decade. The answer is that so much of the discovery of Antarctica is connected to other things we've talked about on this show. The event did not spring organically into being. It was an outgrowth of what was going on in the world at that time, and that's the important part of the story. First things first, you have to understand the context. Antarctica has long existed in human consciousness, not as established fact, but as more of a concept. In 240 BCE, a man named Eratosthenes, the chief librarian of the Great Library of Alexandria, more or less correctly measured the circumference of the Earth with a simple experiment involving two sticks placed in the ground at noon on the day of the summer solstice. I always want to ask the nutters who think the Earth is flat whether Eratosthenes was supposed to be in on the hoax. Anyway, as the Greeks knew the Earth was round, and knew something of the configuration of its land masses, at least in the northern hemisphere, the idea developed that there might be a major landmass in the as-yet-unknown southern hemisphere to roughly balance the landmasses in the north. The idea of Terra Incognita, or later Terra Australis, was born. In 1519, Ferdinand Magellan set out on his epic expedition, funded by Spain, to circumnavigate the globe. Magellan himself never made it. He was killed in a battle in the Philippines, and in 1522, only 18 men and one ship made it back to Spain, having made such interesting discoveries as the International Dateline. Okay, well, that was not a discovery per se, but they discovered the reason why there had to be an International Dateline. And most famously, they discovered the Strait at the tip of South America, linking the Atlantic to the Pacific Ocean, which is named for Magellan. The Strait of Magellan is a treacherous and disagreeable body of water, separating the South American mainland from the island of Tierra del Fuego, and Magellan's ships had about as much trouble getting through it as many other famous voyages did, including the voyage in 1819 of the first American missionaries to Hawaii. There is our first callback in this episode to a previous subject covered on Second Decade. The Hawaii episode is episode number four, in case you're interested. For a couple of decades in the 16th century, it was supposed, and often depicted on maps, that the Strait of Magellan was the only narrow passage between South America and the huge southern continent, Terra Australis, which had still never been directly seen. The old Greek and medieval ideas of geography were slow to die. In 1578, though, Francis Drake, the quintessential Elizabethan pirate, passed through the Strait of Magellan, but once in the Pacific was blown southward and eastward by a huge storm. His ships moved backwards and south, and in the process did not discover Terra Australis, but instead more water. Cape Horn, the southernmost tip of South America, is in fact merely the southern promontory of a fairly small island, now called Isla Hornos, which is about four miles wide at its widest point. If you really want to get technical, the absolute southernmost point of Isla Hornos, and thus I suppose the real Cape Horn, is on an even smaller island, 780 feet long, that juts out from Isla Hornos and is separated from it, at least at high tide. In any event, the take-home point is that Drake proved there's another body of water, now named the Drake Passage, 
between Tierra del Fuego and whatever else might be down there, which was still unknown in 1578 and remained so until the second decade. In a sense, I'm oversimplifying and fudging the geography here. The truth is that there's a chain of islands leading down from South America to the tippy-top of the Antarctic Peninsula, kind of like the finger of God touching Adam in the famous Sistine Chapel fresco. Where you draw the line between what's really South America and what's really Antarctica is more or less arbitrary. Throughout the 17th and 18th centuries, various European sea expeditions, often British but not always, had a number of near misses with Antarctica, usually as a result of being blown off course. I'm going to skip over most of this lengthy history, but I will note that one of those near misses in 1675 resulted in the discovery of the South Georgia Islands, which are important to our story for a few reasons. In 1769, a British expedition, urged by Sir Edmund Halley, discoverer of Halley's Comet, set out for southern seas to observe the passage of the planet Venus across the disk of the Sun, an event that would not occur again until 1874. Part of the reason for this expedition was to use the astronomical calculations of Venus to figure more precisely longitudes on Earth. The British Parliament had offered the Longitude Prize to the first persons who could come up with a reliable method to measure longitude at sea. The main combatants in this cage match for the Longitude Prize were the eccentric and very bald astronomer Neville Maskelyne and the rough English clockmaker John Harrison, not an astronomer, but a craftsman, who was building a super-accurate watch that could measure time at sea. The competition between Maskelyne and Harrison is chronicled in Davis Sobel's very fine book Longitude, made into an A&E miniseries in 2000, which I highly recommend. Anyway, Maskelyne did not make it to the Southern Ocean. In true British Navy fashion, they delegated the task to an up-and-coming British commander, not only to observe Venus, but to investigate whether there really was any habitable, meaning economically useful, land down there in the as-yet-unexplored South Atlantic. The commander chosen for this task was none other than James Cook. Cook is another character who appears on Second Decade, principally again in Episode 4 on Hawaii. Before his famous Hawaiian expeditions, though, in 1768, Cook set off in the space shuttle Endeavor, sorry, the sailing ship Endeavor, for which the space shuttle was eventually named, and sailed around down there for a while. In 1772, he reported back to England that there was no Terra Australis, at least not one that anybody could make money from. He'd seen some icebergs, some birds, and a lot of seals, but not much else. Cook, though, could not quite leave the South Atlantic alone. In 1775, he returned to the South Georgia Islands, officially claiming them for Britain. This proves, in fact, the impetus for the eventual discovery of Antarctica nearly 50 years later. Although Cook demonstrated that climates below 60 degrees latitude were too frigid to be inhabitable or useful, the South Georgia Islands were economically useful, mainly because of seals. It took about 10 years for the seal business to get going, but the first seal furs were shipped to Europe from South Georgia in 1786 and fetched a handsome profit. Sealing was a grubby and bloody business. Seals were dispatched with a smash to the nose with a club, and then a sealer would use knives to rip off the skin all the way down, strip it of flesh, stretch the skins out on pegs on the ground to dry, then salting and stacking for shipment. Oil was also taken from some seals, boiled in tripods. That must have smelled good. A good sealer could mow through 60 seals in an hour, and the business, especially selling seal furs to China, was so good that the industry was rapacious. It chewed up and down the southern coast and islands off South America like a cancer between 1786 and the second decade, 
utterly decimating the seal population in the South Atlantic. Here is another connection to a previous Second Decade story. You may remember the odyssey of Captain Charles Bernard, the American sailor who was stranded for two years beginning in 1812 on the Falkland Islands. That was in episode 5. Bernard was part of the seal trade, and he was at the Falklands, which is in the same area because that was where the good seals were at that time. It was the search for as-yet-unravaged seal populations for this bloody and lucrative trade that finally led mariners down that chain of islands toward Antarctica. In February 1819, a two-masted brig called the Williams, under the command of Captain William Smith, was on his way from Buenos Aires to Valparaiso, Chile, rounding Cape Horn. But a search for better winds led Smith even further south. On February 19, 1819, at a latitude of 62 degrees south, Smith discovered an island that did not appear on the charts. What he had discovered and named Williams Point was the northernmost point of Livingston Island, on another part of which, I might add, is Half Moon Beach. As geographers now classify Livingston Island as technically part of Antarctica, here lies the basis of Smith's claim that he was the discoverer of Antarctica. Smith did not land on the island he'd found. Instead, he went back to Valparaiso and told the British authorities about his discovery. Some were skeptical. Hadn't Cook already told them that there was nothing down there? But others, particularly Americans in the seal trade, were intrigued. If there were islands down there, there could also be new seal grounds. It was worth it to Smith to try again to verify his discovery. Smith's second expedition in the Williams in May 1819 was inconclusive. Remember that the seasons in the Southern Hemisphere are reversed. Our winter is their summer and vice versa. Smith had first seen Livingston Island in February, the height of the Antarctic summer. Now he was returning in May, the equivalent of our November, with the weather growing colder. Rapidly freezing temperatures and thickening sea ice caused Smith to turn back. He couldn't prove his discovery of new Antarctic land. He was still game for another try, but before he could organize a third expedition, the Spanish beat him to the discovery, albeit in a tragic way, and one that could, like his own claim, not be verified. The crew of the San Telmo, humanity's original sacrifice upon the icy shores of Antarctica, is about to sail into our story. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Up until now, I've been framing the discovery of Antarctica as being driven largely by economic reasons, the lust for profits from seal furs and oil. The voyage of the San Telmo was undertaken for entirely different reasons. Her voyage was in pursuit not of profit, but of war. Here again is another connection to past episodes of Second Decade. Season 2 of the show ended with a three-part episode on Simone Bolivar, one of the most important figures of the 18-teens. Bolivar, a Venezuelan patrician, launched a revolution against the moribund colonial rule of Spain in the New World in 1811, and with world-shaking results. The fires of revolution and independence initially kindled in Caracas in that year soon threatened to burn down all of Spain's empire in the Western Hemisphere, 
which had begun in 1492 with the initial conquests of Columbus. Spain in the 18-teens was in turmoil. Spanish colonial rule over the Americas was greedy and profitable, but not very innovative. Basically, Spain financed her empire through the slave labor of millions of Native Americans, extracting precious metals from the earth, particularly silver mines in Peru. After 300 years of burning through that cash, though, the Spanish Empire was running on fumes. That made it easy prey for Napoleon, who invaded Spain in 1808. Napoleon found Spain in the 18-teens a little like we Americans found Vietnam in the 1960s. Easy to defeat on paper, not so much in reality. The Peninsular War raged for years, and upon Napoleon's defeat, for that story, listen to episodes 10-12 of Second Decade, Napoleon in Russia, and my more recent three episodes on the Hundred Days, Anyway, after Napoleon's defeat, King Ferdinand VII was restored to the Spanish throne in 1814. Immediately, Spain was faced with crisis. Bolivar's wars in Latin America had already been going on several years. The second half of the 18-teens, following the Napoleonic Wars, were Spain's last chance to hold on to its New World Empire. And throughout these years, from 1814 onward, Bolivar's revolution progressed, two steps forward, one step back, but with Spanish or royalist forces increasingly on the defensive. Peru was the most desperate battlefield. This was, after all, the source of the silver mines, what little capital the Spanish Empire had left. The Crown sent an expedition of troops to Peru, around Cape Horn, to assist royalist forces on the ground. At the Battle of Maipú, on April 5, 1818, the royalist armies were decimated by General José de San Martín. The Spanish government decided they had no choice but to send still another contingent of troops to faraway Peru for yet another try. Only this time there was much less enthusiasm. It was hard to find volunteers either to staff what was now called the South Sea Division, and even harder to find anyone to command it. The commander they eventually found, and ordered to lead it, was Rosendo Porlier. Age 49, Porlier was a seasoned Spanish naval commander, having fought at Cadiz and Trafalgar against the British hero Lord Nelson, no less. Few men were more well-respected than Porlier, but he was evidently not enthusiastic about the mission. It is said, when the expedition left Cadiz, Porlier told a fellow captain, Farewell, Frasquito, probably for eternity. The Spanish did what they could to scrape together the South Sea Division. In addition to the 74-gun ship-of-the-line San Telmo, under the command of Captain Joaquin de Toledo y Para, the squadron also included the frigate Pureba and the merchant mariner frigate Mariana, another, and another ship called the Alejandro. Of the three, San Telmo was the largest ship, carrying a total complement of 644. On May 11, 1819, the squadron left Cadiz, Spain's principal naval base. The San Telmo was loaded with several hundred Spanish marines, together with heavy ammunition. This would be a long voyage of tens of thousands of miles around Cape Horn and up the southwestern rim of South America to Peru. I have oftentimes imagined what this voyage must have been like. Hundreds of men, most of them probably just boys, crowded together on leaky gun decks in canvas hammocks on a pitching wooden ship only 173 feet long by 47 feet wide, eating hardtack and mush, probably with one or maybe two toilets for all those guys for a voyage of months. I crossed the Atlantic myself by sea once, but under much different circumstances. I sailed on an ocean liner, the Queen Mary II, which is the size of an aircraft carrier, but it's easy to get seasick even on a ship that size, and they didn't have Dramamine in 1819. That Porlier's squadron would get there at all was not a foregone conclusion. 
The revolutionary government of Chile was, in 1818 and 1819, organizing a navy as well as an army, and to lead it they tapped veteran British Royal Navy commander Thomas Cochrane, who had left Britain after a famous scandal in which he was accused of trying to corner the London stock market by floating a false rumor in 1814 of Napoleon's death. Cochrane lent considerable support to revolutionary forces and is credited later with helping to achieve Peru's independence. The idea of an end-of-the-world cage-match naval duel between Cochrane and Rosendo Porlier is an absolutely thrilling notion, but alas, no such thing happened in real life, as much as I wish it had. The voyage of the South Sea Division was a difficult one. Only a few days out from Cadiz, the Alejandro proved unable to the journey. She was leaky and rickety, with stuff breaking down on board all the time. Porlier decided to send the Alejandro back to Cadiz, feeling that she would be more of a burden than a help to the squadron. That left three ships. Through the high summer months of 1819, the San Telmo, the Prueba, and the Mariana crossed the Atlantic to Rio de Janeiro. By now it was August, a winter month in the southern hemisphere. Storms and winds are unpredictable at this time of year. After resupplying, Porlier brought the squadron south to Montevideo, and there waited for the waters and winds to calm down for the most treacherous part of the voyage, the passage around Cape Horn. In late August, he decided to go for it. The three ships sailed south toward Cape Horn, and the San Telmo's unscheduled rendezvous with destiny. It was impossible in 1819, before the advent of modern weather forecasting, to predict anything at sea, especially in a part of the ocean as mercurial and dangerous as the verge between the South Atlantic and the Antarctic Sea. The division immediately encountered a series of punishing storms, one right after another, pounding them day after day, night after night. In such heavy weather, the ships at times could not see each other, and without radio communication, as in the modern era, keeping a squadron of even three ships together proved impossible. They split up. The weather was unrelenting. Somehow, through determination and probably a lot of blind luck, two of the ships managed to make it around the Horn and eventually docked, a week apart, at the Spanish port of El Calao on the Peruvian coast. The first to arrive was the Pureba on October 2, 1819, with the Mariana following later. The crew of the Mariana had been the last ship to see the San Telmo. In the lashing wind and gray rain, they reported that they had seen the ship, its masts and spars broken and drifting apart from them, on September 2nd. The position of the San Telmo was 62 degrees south latitude, 72 degrees west longitude, directly north of Livingston Island, the phantom island William Smith claimed he had discovered just seven months before. The Spanish authorities waited, hoping against hope that the San Telmo would eventually limp into port, or that there might be a message conveyed from her to some other ship that might get word back as to her whereabouts. But I doubt, after that last report from the Mariana, that anybody was very optimistic. Chances were pretty good that the San Telmo had gone down somewhere out there, carrying Rosendo Porlier and the 643 men under his command to an icy, watery grave. On May 6, 1822, the Spanish government issued an official statement. It said, quote, In consideration of the long time elapsed since the departure of the ship San Telmo from the port of Cadiz on May 11, 1819, toward the Pacific Ocean, and given the few hopes that the ship has been saved, His Majesty the King has resolved, at the proposal of the General Captaincy of the Navy, that the mentioned ship and the men who were traveling in it are discharged. End quote. This whole drama occurring on the Spanish side was playing out completely independently of the scramble for islands, claims, and seal furs that was going on among the British, Americans, and eventually Russians. It is to that story that we return now, 
with the promise of a few more words about the San Telmo at the close of this episode. I left off this story after William Smith, eager to prove the existence of the land he discovered in February, failed on his second expedition in June 1819 to confirm his discovery. At about the same time the San Telmo was meeting with disaster, Smith was organizing a third expedition. Indeed, on October 15, 1819, just six weeks after the San Telmo was presumably lost in the same waters, William Smith returned aboard his ship, the Williams, and found what he was looking for. He and his crew sighted land about six miles from the previous position date observed in February. What they were seeing is an island we now call Desolation Island, and that name gives you a sense of what it was like. After remaining at anchor to wait for better weather, Smith and his men went ashore the next morning, October 16th. They planted a Union Jack flag to claim the land for King George III, who was at that moment deep into his final illness, which I described in another previous episode of Second Decade. Smith noted in his log that the land was, quote, very high and covered with snow, vast quantities of seals, whales, and penguins. The mention of seals was important. It would invariably bring the bloody sealers down to Antarctica in search of profit. At last, an economic basis for caring about the existence of Antarctica had been firmly established. On November 24, 1819, Smith landed back in Valparaiso, and his report of discovery caused a sensation. The floodgate was loosened. Now everybody, from military men to naturalists to sealers, whalers, and cartographers, was eager to cash in on these mysterious lands to the south. And it was not just the fact that Smith had found not one, but two Antarctic islands. On the way back, he passed several more, thus proving that there was a chain of islands down there, possibly leading to that fabled icy mainland that had eluded explorers for centuries. Over the next couple of months, there were several more discoveries as British ships of various classes darted southward from Valparaiso and Buenos Aires. Remember, we're now in the high summer of the Antarctic, and in that summer, 1819-1820, Antarctic waters had suddenly had more traffic than they'd ever had before. On Christmas Day, 1819, a British captain, Joseph Herring, chartered a brig called the Espirito Santo and discovered what's now Rugged Island. You can't accuse these guys of not being descriptive and they claimed it for the dying King George with several glasses of rum. A little less than a month later, on January 16, 1820, William Smith, together with a sea captain named Edward Bransfield, returned to Livingston Island to a place called Barkley Bay, which is on the other side of the island from Half Moon Beach. The sealers were already getting started. After several more minor discoveries were made of various Antarctic islands over the course of the season, by the Williams and the other ships, an American expedition in the brig Hercilia arrived on these icy islands. James Sheffield, captain of the Hercilia, had heard of Smith's discoveries in late 1819 and wasted no time making a beeline for the seal rookeries. On May 20, 1820, after a tour of the newly discovered islands, the Hercilia docked in Stonington, Connecticut and sold her cargo of seal skins for over $22,000, the equivalent of about $400,000 in today's money. But amidst the seal voyages, one final voyage of pure discovery stumbled onto the Antarctic stage at precisely this time, and it is this one that, incorrectly in my view, usually gets the credit for quote-unquote discovering Antarctica. To understand what Fabian Gottlieb Thaddeus von Bellingshausen was doing in Antarctica, we have to understand a little bit of Russian history of this period, which, also conveniently enough, connects to previous events I've discussed on this show. See now why I waited 40 episodes to tell this story? The Russians were, in this period, generally of two minds about world exploration. 
On the one hand, they wanted to be in the big leagues, credited with discovering and claiming new lands across the globe, and they wanted to have Russian explorers mentioned in the same breath with British, Spanish, and increasingly Americans who were remaking the map of the globe. To this end, starting from their tenuous base in Alaska in the 1740s, where the Russians were the first Europeans to get into the fur trade, a very thin chain of Russian settlement stretched outward and downward. Russians made attempts to establish outposts and colonies, usually serving their fur trade, in what's now Washington, Oregon, California, and in the second decade, even Hawaii. To bolster their cred as world discoverers, the Russian Tsar Alexander I sent an expedition under the Baltic-German Admiral Johann von Krusenstern to circumnavigate the globe. This was in 1803. As it turned out, one of Krusenstern's younger officers was Thaddeus von Bellingshausen, also of German-Baltic extraction. On the other hand, the Russians did not have the economic resources, or the wherewithal, to make a really serious bid for colonial world empire. Their connection to foreign lands came mainly across the Urals and Siberia. They weren't a great naval power, at least globally, the way Britain was, nor a commercial maritime power, like the new United States was rapidly becoming. After the Krusenstern expedition got back, the young and charismatic but somewhat unstable Tsar Alexander was drawn into events in Europe, most notably his friendship and eventual bitter rivalry with Napoleon. I told that story in the three episodes of Napoleon in Russia, one of the greatest military and humanitarian disasters of the 19th century. Alexander emerged from the war with France both victorious and chastened. With Napoleon in exile on St. Helena, the Tsar saw himself as the leader of Western Christendom. He also frequently sank into bouts of religious mania. But in 1815, he did revive Russian dreams of making a mark on the world by authorizing two new exploration expeditions, one to the North Pole, one to the South. In May 1819, the same month that the San Telmo set out from Cadiz, an expedition of two ships, the Vostok and the Mernier, were busy provisioning in St. Petersburg for a long expedition under the command of von Bellingshausen. The official objective was to discover new lands on which the Russians might build repair stations for a world-spanning fleet of ships. As usual, there were other objectives too, most notably science, the expedition was to carry two German naturalists to catalog all the fantastic animals they expected to find, perhaps a bit starry-eyed of them in a land of polar desolation. Bellingshausen's expedition was ambitious. In order to get them to sign on to such a dangerous voyage, the ship's company and crew were paid eight times the going rate. Bellingshausen bought tons of salt beef, pork, wheat, sauerkraut, tea, sugar, cocoa, and materials to brew beer on board, beer being in these times safer than water, which carried infection. The expedition had a few artists on board who were supposed to draw land masses, plants, animals, and native humans they might encounter, again in Antarctica. Nothing was left to chance. Unlike the seal voyages of the Brits and Americans, which were fly-by-night operations designed to make a cheap buck, von Bellingshausen's expedition was more on the scale of an Apollo moon mission. The Admiral faced a major blow right off the bat. Even before the expedition left, the two German naturalists supposed to embark at Copenhagen quit. On July 4, 1819, the Vostok and the Mirny sailed from St. Petersburg without them. Stopping at Portsmouth, Russian officers caught carriages to London to buy a bunch more supplies, while Bellingshausen himself visited Joseph Banks, president of the Royal Society, to ask if he knew anybody who could replace those German naturalists. Banks, one of the leading scientific lights of the second decade, as you may recall, was one of the scientists who was eagerly receiving reports from America 
of the supposed sea monster of Gloucester Harbor, which I talked about in the last regular episode. Bellingshausen couldn't, as it turned out, replace the naturalists. On August 26, 1819, the week before the San Telmo was lost near Livingston Island, the Russian expedition left European shores for the South Atlantic, crossing the equator on October 18th. The Russians touched land again when they put in at Rio de Janeiro, where they spent three weeks, again following in the footsteps of Porlier and the San Telmo. Von Bellingshausen was horrified by the slave markets of that city, and the experience of staying there seems to have disagreed with the Russians. In December 1819, the expedition reached the South Georgia Islands. After surveying for a time, and of course meeting up with some British sealers, von Bellingshausen turned south. They discovered and surveyed several more islands, continuing the pattern we've seen of island hopping always a little bit further south until their progress was stopped by ice or weather. The truly fateful encounter, which didn't seem that fateful at the time, was on January 16, 1820. The quote that opened this episode described what von Bellingshausen saw on that day. It is unclear whether he saw any land or merely ice, but the position of the sighting that was recorded that day, latitude 69 degrees 17 minutes 26 seconds south, longitude 2 degrees 45 minutes 46 seconds west, makes it clear that he had reached the mainland of Antarctica, not one of that endless chain of islands, but the actual frozen continent itself, or at least the ice shelf attached to it. It's for that sighting and that position that von Bellingshausen has been deemed to edge out his competitors as the true quote-unquote discoverer of Antarctica. But to me, his claim is no more persuasive than the others. Like William Smith's discovery of Livingston Island in February 1819, von Bellingshausen didn't get out of the boat. It's not like he planted a Russian flag on the shore and shouted, I claim this land for Tsar Alexander, in Russian. He made a sighting. He lived to tell about it. He and his men visited Australia and spent another season exploring Antarctic waters. They returned to Russia triumphantly in July 1821, being met by Tsar Alexander, who had dispatched them two years before. By that time, Antarctica was definitely and unquestionably open for business. The sealers first, and later the whalers, descended in droves upon the icy continent in search of the things they could kill and sell on the open market. The explorers, mostly seeking the glory of being the first to reach this geographic landmark or another, came later, particularly in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Then came the scientists, especially after World War II. Today, Antarctica is a patchwork of aluminum huts and radar antennas, crisscrossed by snowmobiles and helicopters, full of people with government grants studying penguins, geology, volcanoes, and climate change. The sealers are gone now. So are most of the seals. Antarctica is, in the words of the, one of the authors of whose book I read for this episode, a big, dead place. But there's one more story I need to tell about Antarctica before all that happened, one of the most haunting tales I've ever heard regarding the continent. In 1821, the same year von Bellingshausen's expedition returned to Russia, a British sailor named James Waddell set out to find, you guessed it, seals. The Shetlands and Falklands seal populations were already heavily denuded, and this was toward the end of the brief boom where there were still enough seals in Antarctica to support a lucrative trade, if you could get at them. In that Antarctic summer of 1821, Waddell and his men landed on Livingston Island, in fact on none other than Half Moon Beach. There, an anchor, spars, and other bits of wooden wreckage were found scattered on the desolate shore. Waddell had little doubt that they were from the San Telmo, whose last position was logged by the Pureba as exactly due north of where the wreckage was found. 
More hauntingly on their travels through the neighboring islands, Waddell and his men kept finding evidence of human habitation, seal bones scraped with knives as if by people desperate for food, and caves that showed signs of human habitation. More than 150 years later, in 1993, an expedition from Spain's University of Zaragoza also found similar clues in this same area, including human remains. 644 men were aboard the San Telmo. We know its last position, just north of Livingston Island. Wreckage was found on Half Moon Beach in 1821, and again in 1993. While the provenance of the seal bones, human remains, or caves can't be definitively determined, even in such a cold environment where all the clues are preserved, it seems a likely inference, to me at least, that some of those 644 men washed up on Livingston Island and engaged in a desperate and ultimately doomed struggle to stay alive. There would not have been much to eat on that island, and although the storms and winds would have moderated a little with the coming of the Antarctic summer, the brutal elements in Antarctica are impossible to survive for long without outside help and resupply. If men from the San Telmo survived, their final days and weeks, perhaps months, must have been unremittingly cold, bleak, hopeless, and ultimately tragic. If any of them were still alive on January 16, 1820, the day von Bellingshausen supposedly discovered Antarctica, I doubt they would have been for very long. Perhaps it's not fair to credit the men of the San Telmo with the discovery of Antarctica, the last continent to be touched by human hands. But as they were the first human beings in the history of the world to die there, I would say they sacrificed more than enough to go down in history. If you like this podcast, please do me a favor, leave a star rating and a review on iTunes or Google Play. If you have social media or talk to other history buffs, give Second Decade a mention. Once again, remember my upcoming classes, a free webinar on the historical background of Brexit that's coming April 11th, 9 a.m. Pacific Time. Email me at sean at seanmunger.com. Then there are the paid classes, the Roaring 1920s, that'll be Sunday, April 28th, $50 to join that class. Send it to paypal.me slash historysean, and you can help defray my medical expenses. I'd love for you to contribute to my Patreon account, that's patreon.com slash seanmunger. You can also read a lot of history and a lot of other stuff at my personal website, seanmunger.com. My historical sources for this episode include Below the Convergence, Voyages Toward Antarctica, 1699-1839, by Alan Gurney, Penguin Books, 1997, and also the article The Santelmo, A Story Without Ending, by Luis Mola Ayuso, April 2000, that's a web article. I'll link it on the webpage for this episode. Also want to give a shout out to my friend Brandon Newberg and his great podcast, Dead Ideas. Please do take a listen to that. It's really, really interesting. Music credits. Our theme music for this podcast is called The Long Road Ahead by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, used under Creative Commons 3.0 license. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night. <laughs>